Welcome to The Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the humble lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is Murder Coaster. Today, we're talking modern day vampires. And no, we're not talking about undead supernatural beings. We're talking about actual murderous blood sucking freaks that were very much alive and could have been your neighbor. (laughs) And we have three blood sucking ghouls for you today, each representing a different type of psychosis or psychological makeup. First, we have the severely mentally ill being represented by Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento. Then we have the sexual sadist and sociopath, John Brennan Crutchley, otherwise known as the vampire rapist. Then we have the poser wannabe, Rod Farrell, the Kentucky teenage vampire. We'll discuss the life and crimes of each of these murderers, followed by our lovely psychoanalyst, Sarah, giving us her thoughts on each as a professional mental health worker. So let's get on with it. First, we bring you Richard Trenton Chase, the Sacramento Vampire. Part one, bunny rabbits and blenders. Little Richie was always a little weird. In the 1960s, When he was just 10 years old, the neighbors started noticing that all the cats in the neighborhood were going missing. Then his mother found one, dead and buried, in one of her flower boxes. Strange. Richard had a fairly common upbringing for 1950s America, besides the fact that his parents were divorced. It seems to me that it wasn't nurture or the environment that he grew up in that made Richard Chase into the monster he became. It was the terrible mental illness that he was born with that lay ticking inside him like a time bomb. But we'll get to that soon enough. Richard came to age during the late 60s as the sexual revolution was coming into full swing. And friends say he had no problem picking up girls who were all ready to fool around. But try as he might, poor Richie was impotent. It seems one of the first illusions he would suffer was that his impotency was caused by a lack of blood in his body, since it's blood that causes an erection. He also came to believe that his heart was shrinking, his stomach was backwards, a bone was growing out of his head, his blood was turning to powder, that someone had stolen his pulmonary artery, and that Nazis and aliens were conspiring with his mother to take him away. But the belief that he didn't have enough blood in his body caused him to start acting out early in bizarre and violent ways. As a teen, he took a kitten from his girlfriend's house and killed it, sucking the blood from the body in hopes that it might cure his impotence. Ugh, gross. Uh, I'm like imagining that the kitten to him was like a really, really ripe orange. You know, he's just sucking on it. 
Oh, <laughs> and I guess this is probably the point where we should warn our listeners. It just gets worse and then worse. And then, well, if you don't already know this story, it's going to get worse than you could possibly imagine. Next, he shot a dog and tried to collect the blood with a Dixie cup. Richard also proved himself to be a thief and a liar, showing no remorse, embarrassment, or guilt over anything. It's like a mix of being mentally ill and being an asshole. The two do not always go together by any means. Richard became obsessed with LSD, dropping acid often, which was not good for his mental health. I personally think a psychedelic vision quest now and again can be a wonderful soul-searching adventure. But if you're already dealing with psychosis or have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, psychedelics can push you over that edge, and I do not recommend it. Right. That's a recipe for disaster. And in 1970, Richard moved out of his parents' house into an apartment with two girl roommates. They described him as absolutely filthy, refusing to bathe or wash his clothes. And they also described him as terrifying. He'd come out of his room naked, speaking gibberish. He'd go off on paranoid rants about shadow people. He'd wrap his head with orange slices, towels, and saran wrap, and soon boarded up his door and locked himself in the closet, refusing to come out. But, you know, I've had roommates like this, honestly. Well, eventually the girls, too scared to ask him to move out, just abandoned the whole apartment. So he's slipping in and out of psychosis. He's thinking people are following him. He's acting out violently, constantly in and out of doctor's offices. And in 1973, he ends up in the American River Hospital, where he tells doctors his heart and kidneys had stopped working and his blood was no longer flowing at all. And it's at this point that Richard is finally diagnosed with schizophrenia. But the doctors say that although he's suffering from delusions and hallucinations, he's not a danger to himself or society. And he's released to the care of his mother. But he soon begins acting up, accusing her of poisoning his food and controlling his mind. So, unable to handle him, she gets him his own apartment. Great plan, Mom. <laughs> and this is when Richard gets really into rabbits. He starts riding his bike to the rabbit farm every day. If you think he was looking for pets, I'm afraid you'd be wrong. He'd gut them and eat the entrails, put the put the guts in the blender with some Coca-Cola and as much blood as he could get, and make himself a smoothie, a Richard Chase smoothie. Protein, vitamins, so many minerals. And all was fun and games until Richard injected himself with a syringe full of rabbit blood. He ended up in the hospital for blood poisoning, terribly sick. When asked why he'd injected himself with rabbit blood, Richard said it was because he was afraid he'd eaten a rabbit with battery acid in it, and the acid had leaked from his stomach out into his flesh, and he needed to purify himself 
with clean rabbit blood. This got him institutionalized. And this is where he was given the name Dracula by the patients. And not just because all he ever talked about was his blood, how he needed it, and how there wasn't enough in his body. It was also his habit of capturing birds from the window ledge of his room, ripping off their heads and sucking the blood out, and then wandering around the hospital with blood and feathers all over his face. Let's talk about Cotter's syndrome, because I think it's safe to say that's what we're seeing here. Cotter's syndrome, otherwise known as walking corpse syndrome, is a delusion under which the affected individual believes that they're missing blood or internal organs, or conversely believes that they're dead or putrefying, immortal, or that they no longer exist. It's very rare. Cotter's syndrome is not a disease or a mental disorder. It's always considered a symptom of another larger underlying condition. For my psych nerds out there, it's not in any edition of the DSM. Empirical evidence suggests that Cotter's syndrome usually has an underlying physiological cause. It most often results from brain damage. Brain imaging tests conducted on individuals with Cotter's syndrome show evidence of strokes, tumors, blood clots, and traumatic brain injuries. There's neural misfiring in the fusiform face area of the brain that causes the patient's feelings of derealization. There's often lesions on the parietal lobe and atrophy of the median frontal lobe of the brain. Cotter's also shows comorbidity with schizophrenia and long-term substance use. Uh, and by August 1977... Richard is now 27 years old. He's out of the institution and back living in an apartment that his parents are paying for. He's also encouraged by his mother off his medication, which his mother says makes him like a zombie. So, hmm, a zombie or vampire? Which would you rather have? Such a choice. <laughs> and arguably, the zombie would be more docile, right? But as a mental health professional, neither the vampire or the zombie option is an ideal outcome for a struggling patient. I did some digging into what this zombie-making medication might have been. Chase's medical records from his hospitalization in 1967 indicate that the medication he was prescribed was Thorazine. This is a first-generation antipsychotic medication and it's considered a major tranquilizer. One of the first antipsychotic medications on the market ever. It was first synthesized in the early 1950s. Medical journals of the time described Thorazine as inducing artificial hibernation. And to put it into perspective, there's evidence to suggest that Thorazine was used in Jonestown in their extended care unit to sedate potential defectors so they wouldn't interfere with the plans of the cult. Richard received his prescription in the 60s, when the study of psychopharmacology was still in its infancy. In the 1980s, second-generation antipsychotic medications hit the market too, 
These are things like Abilify, Latuda, and Invega. These second-generation medications worked by partially blocking dopamine receptors, and some of those medications simultaneously impact serotonin production. But the main difference between first- and second-generation antipsychotic medications is the decrease in the severity of the side effects. This helps patients feel better, so they can feel comfortable enough to stay on their medications indefinitely. And of course, patients now have so many more options. Nowadays, Cotard syndrome is most often treated with a combination of two different types of psychiatric medication, such as an antipsychotic and anti-anxiety medication that are taken in conjunction, or with electroconvulsive therapy, otherwise known as ECT. And Richard's got a new hobby and obsession, guns, which he begins collecting. This actually sets off no red flags at the time, because being in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains with a lot of nature and hunting, gun enthusiasts were very common in the area, especially in that time period. So on August 3rd, 1977, tribal police are called out for an abandoned car in the Walker Reservation by Pyramid Lake in Nevada. They find a 1966 Ford Ranchero stuck in the sand with the inside streaked in blood, including a white bucket inside. And inside that white bucket was a liver sitting in a pool of blood. Ooh, yikes. Hmm. And they also found a loaded 30-30 rifle and a 22 pistol stained with blood. And far in the distance, naked, perched up on a rock, they saw Richard Chase, his entire body covered in blood. He fled when he initially saw them, but they were eventually able to apprehend him. And when the cops asked him where the blood had come from, Richard said, It's seeping out of me. Oh, no. <laughs> and Richard was taken into custody. But when it was discovered all the blood and the liver had come from a cow, they simply released him and told him never to come back to the reservation. Well, you know, it was the 70s. So maybe finding naked hippies covered in blood and sunbathing in the desert wasn't that uncommon. Just more of a nuisance than anything else. They're all, get Get on out of here, you dirty, naked hippie with all your blood and beads and cow livers and incense. Tripping on your LSD and thinking someone reversed your stomach. Go on, get. <laughs> Asked about it later, the tribal police replied, you can't arrest someone for being weird. You know, we should thank our lucky stars for that, honestly. Thank, thank you, lucky star. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Just four months later. Shortly after Christmas, the murders would begin. Richard's mental, mental illness began to take on darker and darker shades. He had begun stalking the neighborhood, creeping around, peering into windows, sneaking into yards. His paranoia was also peaking. He's become absolutely obsessed with the idea that Nazis are tracking him with the aid of aliens and his mother putting radios into his soap to monitor his every move. 
Richard was also furious that his parents had forbidden him to come to their house on Christmas. Yeah, apparently he'd shot the family cat right in front of his mother and then proceeded to rub its blood all over his body. But obviously, in his mind, that's therapeutic. He needed that cat's blood to, well, I guess to get a Woody. (laughs) And (laughs) thinking about it, maybe that is weird. I mean, trying to get a Woody in front of your mom and all. Anyway, (laughs) why wouldn't they let him visit on Christmas? That's a head scratcher. You're the psychotherapist. You tell me. (laughs) What a great house guest. (laughs) Anyway, because of this, they wouldn't let him visit on Christmas. And he spent the holiday all alone in his apartment. And this filled him with rage. A rage he sought to satisfy with Moida. (laughs) Oddly enough, for a vampire and someone obsessed with blood, his first forays into murder were done at an impersonal distance with a gun. On December 27th, 1977, Dorothy Polinsky was washing dishes at seven in the evening and felt a streak of heat pass over her head. That heat was a bullet that went through her bun of hair and lodged into a cabinet behind her. An extremely close call. So his first attempt at murder was unsuccessful. Yes, but the very next day, on the 28th, he sees Ambrose Griffin 55 years old, unloading groceries, and shot him in the chest. This would be Richard's first murder, but not his last, and they would grow much closer, much bloodier, and much, much more depraved. At this point, Richard had bought so many puppies that the pet stores in the area had cut him off and refused to sell him anymore. So he'd taken to buying animals in the classified ads where he bought a dog from a woman and after killing it and drinking its blood, he began calling the woman who sold it to him over and over, telling her just what the blood tasted like and how he'd done the poor creature in. And it's also said that dogs in the neighborhood would growl and bark at him when he walked by. Good. Stay away from the puppies. I guess it's the smell, right? Is the smell of puppy death on him? Oh, my God. <gasps> Poor puppies. <laughs> I know, yeah. Richard had taken to wandering the neighborhoods around his apartment with his twenty-two pistol in a shoulder holster, hidden beneath a bright orange ski parka. A parka, by the way, covered in brown stains, which apparently no one realized was blood, except the dogs. Yeah. <laughs> well, blood dries brown. Uh, and I guess all the people just thought he loved chocolate, you know, like really, really loved chocolate. Mm, um, And then January 23rd, 1978 would prove to be a very busy day for Richard Chase. Yes, I, I see this entire day as just one long psychotic episode. He begins the morning trying to break into random houses, scaring the living shit out of people as he attempts to open their sliding glass doors while they sit on the other side staring at him. It's interesting to note 
that if Richard found a locked door, he took it as a sign that he wasn't welcome and would move on to the next house. Which really reminds one of the vampire mythos that a vampire has to be invited into a house in order to enter. Not that Richard ever thought of himself as a vampire or even called himself a vampire, though others did. Yeah, Richard could give a fuck about vampires. This wasn't some edgy pose like we'll see later with the Kentucky teenage vampire cult. He was genuinely obsessed with blood on a primal level. He was the real deal, a true life monster. Later that day, a couple returned home from grocery shopping to find a disheveled and disoriented Richard in their home. They chased him out, Richard yelling, I was just using a shortcut as he ran away. Super convincing. <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> Disturbingly, when they went into their baby's room, they discovered Richard had opened a closed drawer and urinated on the baby's clothing and defecated on the bed. You know, Albert Fish, who will definitely cover one of these days, he used to do the same thing. Like, what's up with that? Power and degradation, maybe? You tell me. I think you're on the right track for sure with that one. Power and regaining a sense of control seem like prime motivators in both of those cases. And it's probably hard to feel any type of control when one feels their own body is rebelling against them at all times, constantly refusing to maintain equilibrium. Hmm. Well, then, I guess, feeling thirsty, Richard goes to a grocery store for a bottle of orange soda, his favorite, and runs into a girl he went to high school with. He tries to engage her with some crazy psychobabble, and when she gets in her vehicle to leave, Richard attempts to open the passenger door and jump in with her. She's like, so creepy. Who knows what would have happened if he had been able to get in that car with her. Richard ends this day by walking up to 2360 Toyoga Way and placing a bullet inside the mailbox. An odd gesture, which I think reveals what a deep state of psychosis he's in. He opens the unlocked door to reveal Teresa Wallen taking out her garbage. He immediately opens fire on her, shooting her twice. And when Teresa falls to the ground, Richard puts a bullet in her temple, execution style. He drags her body to the bedroom, lays her on the bed, before retrieving a knife and empty yogurt container from the kitchen. And returning, cuts off one of her nipples before stabbing her in the torso and pulling her intestines and organs from her body. He gathers as much blood as he can in the yogurt cup to drink and smears the rest across his face. And in one final indignity, he goes outside, finds a pile of dog shit, brings it in, and crams it in her mouth. What's up with all this degradation? Do you think he's still mad at his mother? Is anger part of this psychosis? Well, like you mentioned earlier, mental illness doesn't automatically make somebody an asshole. So mm. 
Yeah, I think it's just safe to say he's got some seriously unresolved issues with women. Just some speculation here, but it's possible that due to his impotence, he strongly associates women with feelings of personal humiliation. Mm. The degradation of his victims could be an indication that he's trying to cope with that trauma by taking retribution to reestablish some sense of control. And that's consistent with the motivational model theory of sexual homicide. Mm -hmm. Worse yet, and we warned you, it's just going to keep getting worse. An autopsy would later reveal Teresa was three months pregnant. I told you Richie had quite the day. Mm. And just four days later, Richard would go on another killing spree, this time leaving four bodies in his wake, one just a toddler. On January 27th, 1978, Richard Chase walked into the house of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroff, who was home with her six-year-old son, Jason, and her sister-in-law's 20-month-old son, whom she was babysitting. Richard found Evelyn in the bathroom, taking a bath, and he immediately shot her in the head, killing her instantly. As he's dragging her body into her bedroom, he encounters her son, Jason, and shoots him twice, killing him as well. He places Evelyn's body on the bed and goes to the kitchen to get a knife. At this point... Family friend Danny Meredith shows up, strolling in the door to find Richard Chase pointing his twenty-two at him. Richard kills him as well, and all this commotion awakens the baby, who begins to cry. And Richard calmly walks into the nursery, puts the barrel of his pistol to the child's head, and Richard pulls the trigger. So, like he had done with Teresa Wallen, Richard cuts Meredith open and pulls her intestines and organs free, stabbing them as he goes, eating part of the liver, and slurping up as much blood as he can. Evidently, excited by the blood he'd consumed, he turns her over, and after stabbing her in the rectum with his knife, he sodomizes her and cuts one of her eyes out. He then takes the infant to the bathroom where he splits its head open, spilling its brains into the tub when he's startled by a knock on the door. This knock is from the neighbor's young daughter. This could have ended in tragedy as well, but luckily, the little girl leaves when no one answers. Richard then grabs the keys to Danny Meredith's red station wagon and exits the house with a bucket of blood and the corpse of the 20-month-old toddler under his arm. And so, just to add a little levity, because that was tough. Yeah, we need some levity. What do you got? All right. It doesn't get much tougher. So, Mm -hmm. I googled what was the number one song of January 1979. And it was Baby Come Back by Player. 
So who knows? Maybe that was on the radio as Richard drove Danny's station wagon away. And in order to add some levity, ease some tensions, I'm just going to sing you guys a couple bars. Baby, come back. Because any fool could see that there's something in everything about you. Okay, I admire your effort, but I can't help thinking that you probably just ruined that song for someone out there, like forever. <laughs> I'm I'm trying. I'm trying. I mean, you need a new strategy. That's that's not it. <laughs> um, investigating the homicides. It doesn't take long for the cops to start hearing about this tall, lanky, filthy young man who'd been seen creeping around the neighborhood in an orange parka covered in brown stains. And it was the former high school acquaintance Richard ran into getting an orange soda. Remember her? He tried to get in the car with her. She's the one who finally put a name to the face. Richard Trenton Chase. Disturbingly, when police arrested Chase, he had photographs of Jason and Evelyn in his pocket that he'd taken from the crime scene. His apartment was covered in blood, both fresh and dried, including all over his eating utensils. His sleeping bag was drenched in it. There were pieces of bone in the kitchen and in the refrigerator were the organs of various animals and a container of human brain tissue. The blender was streaked in gore and stunk of rotting flesh. There were anatomy textbooks scattered about, a marked up psychology article about understimulation, and classified ads with every ad for a puppy circled. Not the puppies. <laughs> <laughs> and most chillingly, a calendar with the days of the murders marked today. And that word had been written on 44 more days to come over the next year. Damn. Yeah, he's gonna, he was going to be busy. Yeah. Busy schedule. On May 8th, though, 1978, Richard Chase was sentenced to death. But on December 26th, 1980, after squirreling away the antipsychotic medication that he was being given, Richard was able to take his own life with a drug overdose. Now, it seems like these crimes come from psychosis and delusions brought on by schizophrenia. But although the crimes were incredibly sloppy and random, he did wear gloves. And he, you know, he's trying to conceal it. He did conceal the car he drove. And he did have 44 more days of murder planned. So he was definitely aware of what he was doing. And he was aware that it was a crime, right? What do you make of all this, Sarah? I'm going to have to agree with you on that. He might have been suffering from a delusion that significantly impacted his life. But Richard was aware of the ethical implications and the potential repercussions of his own actions, even still. According to the U.S. Supreme Court, a defendant's mental illness may make them less morally culpable. Symptoms of mental illness must be taken into consideration by the judicial system in order to conduct a fair trial. 
And it's true also that individuals with schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders may demonstrate cognitive impairments that could interfere with decision-making. When a defendant is so mentally ill that they lack understanding of their crime and its consequences, they are then considered mentally incompetent and unfit to stand trial. But most people with mental illness, even severe mental illness, are not mentally incompetent by this definition. And that's going to be it for our friend Richard. And now we bring you a tale of barbaric cruelty and sadistic perversion. Our next blood-sucking freak was a nerdy computer geek and textbook psychopath and sexual sadist by the name of John Brennan Crutchley, a.k.a. the Vampire Rapist. We bring you part two. Swinger nerds, syringes, and videotapes. What each of these cases have in common is clinical vampirism, more commonly known as Renfield syndrome, an obsession with drinking blood. From 1892 to 2010, over 50,000 people have appeared in psychiatric literature for being addicted to drinking blood. Funnily enough, the term Renfield syndrome was originally invented as a joke by Richard Knoll in the 1980s. But when it comes to the case of sexual arousal and blood drinking, I don't think there's a finer example than the vampire rapist, John Crutchley. John Brennan Crutchley, or JB, as he preferred to be known, was born October 1st, 1946, to upper-class parents in Clarksburg, West Virginia. John was a twin, but his identical brother was born was stillborn, just like Elvis. He had uh, two older siblings, a brother named William, and a sister named Donna June. It's with Donna June that things begin to get strange. Donna died at just 13 years old before undergoing surgery to remove a glass tube from her bladder. She died of nervous collapse just before she was given the anesthetic and was evidently deeply frightened and in a state of hysteria. Yeah, it's it's pretty much weird as hell. How does one get a glass tube in their bladder? Was she masturbating with it? Did someone insert it in her? It feels suspect to me. And no one would ever really know. Um, but her death devastated John's mother, who, in a desperate attempt to replace her dead daughter, started telling JB that she wished that he was a girl. And for the first five years of his life, raised him as a girl, dressing him as a girl. Even at the age of five, JB says he felt humiliated, angry, alienated, and alone because of this. Eventually, his mother went on to have another daughter, and after that, mostly ignored JB, which he said caused permanent feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness of love. 
And it seems when she wasn't ignoring him, she was abusing him, burning his fingers with a curling iron or beating him unconscious with a belt. And how did John deal with this? He became what the neighbors would call a weird, nerdy kid, obsessed with gadgets, once even electrifying the doorknob of his bedroom to keep his mother out. It's it's not a bad idea. I don't no, know. No, <laughs> she doesn't sound like someone I want in my room either. <laughs> he was uh, an incredibly bright kid, but he was hyperactive. And while getting A's in physics and math, he failed most other courses, taking Spanish three times. But he had an IQ of 168, putting him on the same level as Einstein and Stephen Hawking. Yet he graduated at the bottom of his class, 173 out of 193. Despite coming of age in an era of promiscuity and free love, he stayed a virgin until he was 21 years old, stating that he was terrified of girls. Instead of pursuing girls and dating, he just preferred fantasizing about sexually controlling girls through violence and aggressive acts. John struggled through college, failing classes regularly, and was put on academic suspension when his GPA fell to 1.4. But he found work as an engineer at a radio station and at 22 married Maud Motes, a petite, brown-haired, blue-eyed girl. Having always loved gadgets, he showed an uncanny ability with electronic equipment at the radio station and threw himself into his work. But he was fired after installing surveillance equipment to spy on the other employees. Despite his terrible grades, John eventually received his degree, graduating 249th out of 261. Then. In 1973, Maud divorced him, and John moved to Indiana to work at GM's Delco Electronics Division. Maud would later say her husband was crazy, a kleptomaniac, and explosively violent, filled with bizarre sexual impulses and obsessed with wife swapping and group sex. He'd often choke her unconscious during sex seeming to enjoy the strangulation more than the sex itself and beat her so often that she feared if she didn't leave him, he might kill her. In 1972, J.B. began a new relationship with Lisa Baker, a pretty petite blonde, and the two lived the life of 70s swingers, swapping partners and finding other couples through the classified section of sex magazines, J.B. often indulging in his bisexual desires. Apparently, other swingers were eager to include J.B. in their romps because he was, quote-unquote, hung like a donkey. And in 1977, John quit his job at Delco after being accused of stealing $4,000 worth of light-emitting diodes. Like his ex-wife said, he was a kleptomaniac and stole things everywhere he went, and not for any financial gain, 
just for the thrill of it. And soon, Lisa left him as well. By 1978, J.B. was working for information and communications applications in Maryland and was dating another girl by the name of Debbie Fritz-John. Soon, Debbie disappeared. J.B. was the last person to see her alive. And, oddly enough, he had taken a little vacation the morning after her strange disappearance. All this led J.B. to being the number one suspect in the missing person case. Eventually, Debbie's skeletal remains turned up in North Carolina. And the cops, they were all over J.B. After miserably failing a lie detector test, J.B. sued the police for harassment. He lost the suit, but it still had the intended consequences. The investigation into John Brennan Crutchley for the murder of Debbie Fritzjohn officially ceased. Now, just to be clear, John Crutchley was never convicted of murdering anyone. But it seems everywhere he went, women disappeared. And often, the decomposed bodies of women would turn up in areas where he lived. Over the years, he's been linked to the murder of 30 women, and everyone who's encountered him in law enforcement believes him to be a serial killer. And as we'll soon see, this isn't mere speculation. He was, in fact, the vampire rapist, after all. This much is fact. But he was incredibly clever and smart and able to conceal his private life of torture, bloodlust, and murder from the authorities, at least at first. In 1979, J.B. got a job at TRW's Defense and Space Systems Group in Virginia. Here, he flourished, designing a new computer language for the United States Navy. He even received top-secret security clearance with open access to the Pentagon. He later boasted of peddling drugs inside the Pentagon building, not for money, just for the thrill of it, doing something illegal in the heart of the nation's military command. It was during this time that a female co-worker was found dead in her car in the Pentagon's vast parking lot. She had been strangled to death, and no one has ever been charged with her murder. Living in Virginia, in the D.C. area, John's life revolved around sex and drugs. It was the 70s, after all. He frequented sex clubs, and beside his usual penchant for group sex and partner swapping, he began to experiment with bondage and sadist, sadistic, masochistic acts. And it was during this time that he met a nurse who introduced him to vampirism, tutoring him in the art of drawing and drinking blood and instructing him in the rites of ritualistic sex. She showed him how to use intravenous needles, syringes, and surgical tubes and showed him how much blood could be taken from a person before reaching a life-threatening level, an amount I was surprised was so large. She also told him that drinking human blood would purge one of their sins. But J.B., 
being a textbook narcissistic sociopath, I doubt he felt any guilt for his sins or anything at all. That's some nurse. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I just met a nurse that I could go for. <laughs> Supposedly, JB developed an insatiable thirst for blood. And when he couldn't get it, he'd draw off a pint or two of his own to consume. A pint or two. It's like a lot of blood. That is a lot of blood. And during this wild sexual play, JB met a married woman named Karen White Luli. She was somehow magnetically drawn to him. And sensing this was someone that would do whatever he asked, go along with any fantasy that would pop into his head, JB asked her to divorce her husband and marry him instead, which she did. And they soon had a son named Jason. Then, in 1983, JB took a job in Palm Bay, Florida, as an engineer with the Harris Corporation, which built satellites and communication systems for the government. They bought a four-bedroom home down a dirt lane in Malabar, Florida, just east of Palm Bay, and settled into the nice neighborhood, appearing for all to see the portrait of respectability and American family life. That is, until the day a neighbor noticed a naked, handcuffed, and ankle-shackled teenage girl crawling down the road near com nearly completely drained of blood and crying for help. This young woman was 19-year-old Christina Alma, and the date was November 21st, 1985. Christina told a harrowing tale. She'd flown out from California to Florida to visit a friend. And on the last day of her vacation, while the boy she was visiting was at work, she decided to walk into town to say goodbye to some friends she made. She hadn't gone far when a car pulled up and a nerdy looking but quite respectable appearing man in a suit and tie asked her if she needed a ride. Since it was beginning to rain and the guy appeared completely harmless, she took him up on his offer. As they motored along, he explained he had to stop by his house quickly to grab a notebook he left. But it was a long way, and she thought nothing of it. At the house, the man made a ruse of searching the back seat of the vehicle, then quickly looped a length of rope around Christina's neck and choked her into unconsciousness. When Christina awoke, she found herself on a kitchen counter with her hands tied tightly over her head and her ankles bound, stretching her out, spread eagle. The only source of light was a bare bulb hanging down over her and further adding to the horror movie atmosphere, the foul scent of brimstone billowed from a bronze bowl of sulfuric incense and the red light of a video camera mounted on a tripod blinked in the murky shadows. The man appeared before her, thin, pale, and naked, and began to undress her, licking her body as he removed her clothes and occasionally jerking on a rope secured around her neck. 
when she was fully unclothed, the man raped her. A painful ordeal, both physically and mentally, for this poor teenager. Uh, she was a virgin, and she'd been saving herself for someone special. The man then placed strips of tape over her eyes. As she struggled to see, she felt a cold pressure on the inside of her right arm, followed by a painful prick. Then she heard a strange noise, a suckling sound, and she felt herself growing weak. She asked the man, what are you doing? The man replied, I'm drinking your blood. I'm a vampire. Damn, you know, you almost have to remind yourself that this is real. This happened. This is not a movie. Oh, I don't like to remind myself that this is real. <laughs> oh. Uh, and it gets it gets grosser. Um, like, you know, it does. Um, it he, always will. <laughs> uh, he continued to drink her blood, inserting intravenous needles attached to surgical tubes into her right wrist and along the insides of her left arm, draining her until she passed out. When she woke, he untied her, put her ankles in shackles and her hands in cuffs, and walked her down the hall. She was so weak that she collapsed several times. He forced her to eat a pill and then dragged her to a king-size waterbed. The waterbed. So 70s. He lapped at the blood between her legs, raped her again, telling her, I'm not supposed to do this. I'm getting attached to you. Before wrapping his hands around her throat and choking her, telling her he liked necks. He took her to the bathroom, bathed her in cold water and rubbed lotion over her before taking her back to the bedroom where she passed out on the waterbed, only to be revived with smelling salts. And he raped her for a third time, asking her repeatedly if she liked it. Then he told her that he was hungry, and she watched in horror as he inserted a needle into a vein on the inside of her arm, attached surgical tubing to it, and drained her blood into a glass jar, pausing at times to suck on the tube as if it were a straw in order to get the blood flowing faster. When the jar was halfway filled, he put it to his lips and gulped it down. He then explained to her how he had to drink the blood quickly or else it coagulated. After reshackling her ankles, he took her back to the bathroom, wrapped masking tape over her eyes, and laid her in the bathtub, instructing her to remain quiet. Groggy and near death, she managed to escape through a small bathroom window, which, fortunately for her, had a broken lock. She crawled and wormed her way out to the road, where... After initially being passed by two separate vehicles that just stared at her, what the fuck, she was eventually rescued. Doctors estimated she had lost approximately 45% of her blood. Holy shit. Oh. Just to put into context 
how close this poor girl was to death, it's at 50% blood loss that your body will completely lose its ability to pump blood and maintain oxygen delivery. Mm. You know, interestingly enough, Christina told authorities <clears throat> she just wanted to go back to California where people are sane. And uh, I guess she hadn't heard about what was going on in Sacramento just a few years earlier. <laughs> Obviously, that man that Christina spoke of was none other than John Crutchley. Authorities arrested Crutchley and searched his home. His wife and child were on vacation at the time. And when he called his wife, the cops could hear him saying to her in the phone, I picked up this chick, brought her home. Things got out of hand. Yeah, I got the camera out for her. Oh. All <laughs> right. Before the police arrived, he'd realized Christina had escaped and had time to erase the videotapes and dispose of the evidence. But when asked, he readily admitted Christina had been to the house and that he drained and drank her blood. But he claimed that it was all consensual and that she was begging for it. I hate this guy so much. On so many levels, I don't know where to begin. During the search, they found ropes, surgical tubing, intravenous needles, syringes, leather dog collars, chains, and baggies of hair clippings. Also a homemade porno of JB tying his wife on the countertop in the kitchen just as he had done to Christina, attaching the ropes that bound her to hooks in the ceiling and pulling her up off the counter while fucking her and snorting lines of white powder. When his lawyer asked John if there was anything else in the house that might be incriminating, he cryptically said, there was a hacksaw that may have human flesh on it. I feel like if I, I just don't want to know if that That's was That's what the lawyer said. The lawyer's like, okay, just stop. I can't, you're incriminating yourself to me. I don't yeah, think the lawyer ever told the cops that he said that either. No, just blow right past that. You've got enough evidence at this point. <laughs> Get too much evidence. Yeah. Um, detectives noticed his car had also been rigged so that he could pull a knob next to the radio and lock the passenger door via a wire that ran behind the dash. In June 1986... Crutchley pleaded guilty to kidnapping and rape charges in exchange for prosecutors dropping the grievous bodily harm charge for extracting the victim's blood and was sentenced to 25 years in prison with 50 years of subsequent parole. During his time in prison, he relished his moniker as a vampire and bragged to his cellmate of murdering over 30 women, describing decapitation and mutilation in horrific detail. But after serving just 11 years of his sentence, Crutchley was released on August 8th, 1996. People were outraged and they couldn't even find a state or county that would take this guy. So he ended up being transferred to the Orlando Probation and Restitution Center, which is like a halfway house where he'd have to check in with counselors and have a curfew, but he was still more or less on his own. So the vampire rapist is free, much to the chagrin 
of homicide detectives who are positive he's a serial killer. But worry not, dear friends, for in a crazy twist, less than a day later, he was arrested again for violating his parole after testing positive for marijuana. (laughs) As much as I hate to see marijuana arrests, I gotta say, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. No kidding. And this violation of his parole resulted in a life sentence to be imposed on Crutchley in January 31st of 1997 under the three strikes law. Bye-bye, JB. And on March 30th, 2002, the vampire rapist was found dead in his cell with a plastic bag over his head and his dick in his hand. The victim of an accidental death in the act of autoerotic asphyxiation. In other words, jacking off while asphyxiating himself, which sadly does kill a lot of people. Be careful out there. So, Sarah, you want to explain this case a little to us? What's up with this? What indeed? Quick disclaimer, I'm not providing any type of formal diagnosis here. I'm only speculating on what could be happening. As you mentioned earlier, we see some obvious narcissistic and sociopathic traits in John Crutchley's case. As in antisocial personality disorder, Crutchley's demonstrated a pervasive pattern of disregard for the rights and feelings of others in pursuit of his own gratification. He's been calculating, manipulative, sadistic and aggressive to achieve his goals and his high intelligence only made him more dangerous he's demonstrated hematolangia a blood fetish and hypoxophilia autoerotic asphyxiation but my intention here is not to kink shame anybody by pointing this out just be safe and practice consent and now For a teenage romp with a murderer who literally liked to LARP as a vampire, posing and pretending as the undead before setting out on what has to be one of the world's worst road trips ever. He's a double murderer and the youngest person to ever be on death row. Roderick Justin Farrell, a.k.a. the Kentucky Teenage Vampire. And that'll bring us to part three, trench coat and cloak. Before we start this section of our episode, we just want to say that if you're part of a vampire community or identify as a vampire, we here at Murder Coaster support you. As long as no one's being hurt and everything is consensual, we support everyone in their journey on this earth, whatever path you choose. Right? Uh, researching this, I saw an interview with a guy and he described his vampire clan as people he can rest his head on when he needs to cry. And that's beautiful, you know. And personally, I have always loved all things vampire myself. So I get it. Right. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Um, And Rod liked to tell people that he was immortal, reincarnated a demon that had decided to reincarnate as an American teenager 
for kicks. He would mm-hmm. often melodramatically say things like, lest mortals destroy themselves with their own hate and greed, I have been cast on this land. I am the devil's child walking with earthly feet. Honestly, fun roleplay stuff. Yeah, it's all fun and games until someone gets their brains bashed in, which unfortunately is going to happen. Rod was born on March 28th, 1980, to 16-year-old mother Sandra Gibson. Her father abandoned them and Rod would see his father for the very first time during the double murder trial, at which point he'd break down in tears, the only time during the entire trial when he showed any emotions at all. Aw, that's so sad. It, it really is. And the whole thing, it's just one sad story after another. Supposedly, his maternal grandfather had sexually abused him when he was only five. His mother, Sandra, made ends meet by working as an exotic dancer and sex worker. She was the one who introduced Rod to vampires at a very young age, watching Dracula and reading horror comic books, which actually sounds fun as hell. Yes. But they had a really weird relationship, and we'll get back to her later, because she eventually pled guilty in her own separate vampire case when she tried to seduce a 14-year-old boy into sex and blood ritual. Just fuck, you know, no words. Yeah, you can't make this shit up. None of today's cases. (laughs) To understand Rod and his friends, we need to examine the town, Murray, Kentucky, a deeply religious town. They call it the buckle of the Bible belt. There is actually one church for every 300 people. That's a lot of churches. And Murray is a dry town. No alcohol. But it is home to the largest roller skating rink in the USA, Circus Skate. But in an interview in the 1998 documentary, Kentucky Teenage Vampires, the owner of that roller skating rink made it very clear he wouldn't allow any vampires into his establishment. And I'm going to go so far as to say, if you showed up at that roller skating rink with a nine inch nail shirt and a wallet chain, this guy would throw you out, call the cops and call you a vampire. What's the name of that Iggy pop song? Oh yeah. No fun. No vampires allowed at the roller rink. (laughs) No fun. (laughs) All the goth kids and the vampires hung out in a crumbling old structure called the Vampire Hotel in the middle of the woods near Kentucky Lake. It's here that they'd play the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade and act out their vampire fantasies. Then they hung out at the local fast food place, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes until two in the morning. Which is what me and my friends did as kids too. You know, we'd go to the local Denny's, smoke cigarettes, drink coffee, trying to be edgy, all dressing in black and dyeing our hair. You know, so far, so fun. So Rod had been moving back and forth from Kentucky to Eustis, Florida with his mom. And in 1995, he was 15, returning back to Kentucky from Florida when he crossed paths with Jaden Stephen Murphy. Everyone thought they were going to fight. 
because Rod, Rod wore a trench coat and Jaden, Jaden wore a cloak. And so they had to fight because, because I, I don't know, is this some kind of wizard and vampire thing? Why do they have to fight like the established dominance? I don't know. It's dramatic. <laughs> but it's interesting to note that from the beginning, there was friction in this relationship. While Rod was already part of what he calls the freak lifestyle, yes, his exact words, of having long hair, wearing combat boots and an overcoat, and he was pretty sure he was a 500-year-old vampire named Visago, but he wasn't yet indoctrinated in the true ways of the vampire. It was Jaden who indoctrinated him into the vampiric way of life the true way that separated myth and legend from reality. Jaden revealed the real meanings of vampirism to him, and he looked to him more as a real father than the actual father he'd never met. Jaden had a coven of teenage vampires, and he offered to make Rod one of them, to turn him. Jaden took Rod out to a tree in the old Salem Cemetery. They cut themselves with Jaden's knife and drank from each other's wounds. And I can't help but to find this whole scene a little funny, poignant, and even beautiful. You know, there's these two super tough, straight alpha males. Everyone thought they were going to fight, but they end up in a cemetery at night, literally sucking on each other. Sounds like they're more than just friends at this point. And I can't help but to see them leaving there, holding hands, as romantic music plays, like some kind of yaoi manga. Vampire yaoi manga. <laughs> There's probably one out there. Oh, there be. has to be. There's got to be a couple of those. Come right. on. <laughs> Such imagery. <laughs> and so now, Jaden is Rod's vampire father and sire. And since Jaden is the head vampire of the clan, he is everyone's father, including his younger brother, Scott, a.k.a. Gabriel, who is a member of the group. So he's his brother's dad. Yes. Got it. It's a family affair, I guess. It is. And Jaden's mom is not amused. She says it's a bunch of bullshit and she hates all this vampire stuff. And in the end, Rod proves to be a little too much for Jaden, even though he was his sire. When Jaden sees how much Rod enjoys smashing a kitten against a tree until its spine shatters, he begins to quote-unquote pull back from their friendship. Like you do. Um, <laughs> and it gets, it gets so but much worse. he's his vampire dad. Oh, oh, that's like the theme for the day. It gets worse. Yes. While Rod admits to smashing a kitten, he denies having done this next thing. But some sick fucks in that little Kentucky town broke into an animal shelter, took the puppies, and mutilated them in a field. And like, why? I don't think they were drinking the blood like Richard Chase. They're just asshole wannabe edgelord douchebags. Some of the puppies... Their limbs were torn from the body, but others, they looked like they'd just been kicked and stomped into the ground. 
the rumors were that it had been a vampire ritual and they'd rubbed the puppy blood all over their bodies. But it doesn't sound like a ritual to me. I mean, there was no altar or candles, just a bunch of puppies scattered in a field next to an animal shelter. It feels unorganized and like a spur of the moment thing. And again, Ra denied doing this. He said he could prove he wasn't there. He even confronted the sheriff over allegations at the time because everyone was blaming the crime on him. Things had grown incredibly tense between Rod and his vampire father, Jaden, and a confrontation soon broke out with Jaden grabbing Rod by his throat and slamming him against a fence before formally banning him from the vampiric family. Now Rod starts his own clan called the Vampire Clan. Mm, Okay. Not too imaginative. Very literal. (laughs) But uh, he becomes a sire to a 15-year-old Michael Schaefer, turning him. He takes Michael to the hot topic in the mall where the ritual takes place. No, just kidding. Sorry. Go on. And we needed some more levity after the puppy stomping. So I'll yeah, give right. You he also recruits Scott Anderson, 16, and Charity Kesey, also 16, who becomes his girlfriend. Then a friend from Florida, Dana Cooper, who's 19. Uh, isn't 19 a little bit old to be hanging out with 16 year olds? You'd think, right? But. Know. Rod's their vampire school. father, so yeah. he's he's old in spirit. Well, he's 500 years old, that's right. That's right. And Rod, as their vampire father, now had a full-on vampire clan of his own. Beside vampirism, they all shared another thing. A desire to get the fuck out of Kentucky, especially the little town that Rod saw as something out of a Stephen King novel, all nice and wholesome on the surface, but brimming with rot beneath. They dreamed of going to New Orleans and joining the thriving vampire community there, where they would be accepted. And to all this, I say, fuck yeah. Get the hell out of your hometown where everyone's judging you. New Orleans is a great place with an awesome punk and goth community, There's so much music there. Go. Just don't murder anyone along the way. Seems easy. But the vampire clan, they had different plans. So on November 25th, 1996, Rod drops a 10-strip of golden dragonfly acid and the clan take off for Florida to pick up Dana and another old friend of Rod's Heather Windroof, whom he'd been talking to on the phone for months. I can tell you from experience that a 10-strip is a nice dose of acid. He must have been flying. And after 10 hours, they were in Florida. They picked up Heather, and Rod tells her, being the 16-year-old cult leader high on acid that he is, that she needs to decide if she's going to join their family or not. If she decides to join them, she needs to dedicate herself to the vampire clan. Heather agrees. 
and he takes her to a graveyard where they feed on each other's blood in a ceremony to turn her, making her his vampire child. They get Dana, but then the car begins to break down. But, you know, I did some research and it looks like the car just had a leaky tire, which is just a $20 fix. But, oh, the drama of youth. They decide they're going to steal them a new car. And this is when the plan begins to really form. Because Heather's parents, well, they got a sweet Ford Explorer. So the clan drives to Heather's home. Heather talks to her parents briefly, unlocks a series of doors leading from the garage into the house, and then goes to sit with Dana and Charity in their car while Rod and Scott case the place. Rod and Scott circle the house, peering in windows, ascertaining where the occupants are situated. Naomi, Heather's mother, is in the shower. And Heather's stepfather, Richard Wendorf, is napping on the sofa in front of the television. Then, the young vampires enter through a series of doors Heather had left unlocked. I guess Heather unlocking the doors gives them permission to enter. Mm. Creeping through the garage, Rod grabs a short crowbar, then enters the laundry room and eventually slips into the living room where Heather's stepfather naps. When the stepfather begins to stir, Rod cracks him in the head to knock him out. But then he claims he just panicked and decided to beat him to death with the crowbar, bludgeoning him 20 times in the head, cracking the skull open before stabbing him at the flat end when he quote-unquote wouldn't stop breathing. If you watch the police interview, he actually seems quite proud of himself. Scott, he just stood there, stunned, and watched it all go down. But then, to ease the tension a little, Rod talked him into doing a death dance around the body to celebrate. And they did, dancing around merrily before who should walk out of the kitchen but the mother, fresh from the shower, wrapped in a robe, holding a steaming cup of coffee in her hand. Seeing this insanity, her husband sprawled on the sofa with his head crushed in and two strange teenage vampires dancing around the body. She throws the coffee in Rod's face and leaps on him and begins clawing at his eyes. I like her. Get him. That fucker. It really is like something that you'd see in a horror movie. How she throws that hot coffee in his face. So crazy. Right? And uh, as they stumble around in this strange dance, he proceeded to bash her in the back of the head with the blunt end of the crowbar until there was, as he puts it, A big old hole there. And with both parents dead, the two vampires head to the master bedroom where Rod grabbed a pearl necklace, a Discover card, and the Ford Explorer keys and then slipped out into the night where the girls are waiting for them. They dumped the crowbar in the Mississippi River and used the Discover card to get gas and a hunting knife. And even though they took the long, out-of-way routes to try to get to New Orleans, in between Ustis and Baton Rouge, they were pulled over five times. But somehow, 
they didn't fit the description of a murderous teenage cult of vampires. Rod telling the police they were just college students from Texas. Okay, I don't know if it's more fucked up that you get pulled over five times if you have out-of-state plates and try to take the scenic route through, through Louisiana, or that the cops bought the whole college students from Texas story. Either way, there's some kind of vampire magic going on there. <laughs> right. Still not allowed in the roller rink in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. But get pulled over five times. It's fine. You can do that mm. here. And in Baton Rouge, they get a cheap motel and pile in. Uh, I'm like trying to picture this scene. You know how everything's all exciting when you're a kid. You're in a new town. You're in a motel room on a road trip to New Orleans. I mean, these are fun times, right? But the cops are after you for murder. So it's got to be tense and really weird. But, you know, Rod is a 500-year-old vampire. So he's probably cool as a cucumber and been down this road before. Been there, done that. (laughs) But Rod's girlfriend, Charity, she calls her family right from the room, brainchild that she is. You know, just to say hi, you know, tell them how awesome the road trip's going, that she was in Baton Rouge having a great time and she wished they were there. Uh, Of course, the phone line was tapped and the call was being traced. Going great, mom and dad. (laughs) Having a ball. (laughs) On Thanksgiving Day, 1995, in a cheap motel room in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the cops rounded up the infamous teenage vampire cult of Kentucky. They never even made it to New Orleans. Man, Mm. you know, that's got to be a bummer. Big time, man. But they do squeeze out a few more kicks on the whole road trip. When they're put in a holding cell together, Rod and Charity passionately make out as they wait for their extradition to Florida. Teenage love, it's blind. Teenage love, it's even beautiful, but teenage love is not apparently remorseful. Rod confesses immediately, and he says, let my children free. They had nothing to do with it. Meanwhile, Charity says she knew of the plan and tried to talk them out of it. Dana says the same thing. Scott even says he was supposed to kill the father, but just froze. And couldn't do it. But Heather, Heather claims she specifically told Rod to not kill her parents. Like, Rod, I told you, do not kill my parents. How many times do I have to say it? Awful suspect how she unlocked that garage door for them and just sat waiting in the car. And if the story is like she says, and she didn't even know her parents were dead, until they had driven over the Louisiana state line. What did she think of all the blood covering Rod? What's sad is it could have been a legendary trip to the Big Easy that changed their lives, introduced them to new people. Well, hell, they were so young. Who knows? They might have ended up partying in Anne Rice's mansion. It's happened to other people. What? (laughs) Unfair. Instead, though, they're in jail in Florida. And it just keeps getting weirder. In June of 1996, 
While Rod is awaiting trial, Rod's mother, Sandra Gibson, mails a letter to 14-year-old Scott Murphy, a.k.a. Gabriel. Yes, this is head vampire Jaden's little brother. She's evidently been having some sort of relationship with this young teen. The letter is intercepted by the boy's mother, who you might remember hates all this vampire stuff. And she reports it to the authorities, who quickly arrest Sandra. The letter reads, in part, My heart aches, and I feel very alone without you. Now remember, this is from a full-grown woman to a 14-year-old child. She says, Yikes. I know, right? And you can find this, the whole letter on the internet, if you, if you look hard enough. I found Ooh. it. She says, I long to be near you for your embrace. Yes, Josh. To become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal and truly yours forever. And if this isn't weird and disturbing enough, she goes on to say, I've also heard rumors that you're afraid of sex. I do know a lot about sex, but I would never hurt you or make you feel uncomfortable. But despite saying that, she goes on to describe in explicit detail the blowjob she would give him if given the chance. Like, really explicit. This letter's making me uncomfortable. I, I left the I left the the, the blowjob part out. I mean, I mentioned it, but I don't. Okay, but then she details how she'd lift her dress and mount him, while they evidently exchanged blood, and he turned her. She was charged with criminal solicitation to commit rape in the third degree and received uh, probation. On February twelfth, nineteen ninety eight, Rod was given the death penalty and became, as we mentioned earlier, the youngest person on Florida's death row, living in an eight-foot-by-six-foot cell, literally eight feet away from the electric chair. Mm. Rod would famously say, When I killed those people, I felt a rush. I felt like I was God. But if I was a God, I guess I wouldn't be here today, would I? Scott was given life without parole, Dana 17 years, Charity 10. They let Heather go, never charged her with a thing, I guess believing her bullshit story that she specifically told Rod not to kill her parents, and he just went ahead and did it anyway. In November 2000, the Florida Supreme Court reduced Rod's death sentence to life in prison without parole. Dana was released from prison in 2011 and Charity in 2006. While the lead detective said this case had nothing to do with the occult, the press, of course, sensationalized it and called it a ritualistic vampire slaying, which is ridiculous. Don't they know? Vampires just slip under the door as mist, cleanly drain a person of blood, and are gone again maybe transforming into a wolf or a bat to hasten their getaway. They don't use items they found in the garage. This was just a teenage boy bashing a girl's parents' head in the, with a crowbar. A typical example of 
male teenage rage gone out of control. He doesn't appear psychotic, and there was nothing vampiric about the murders themselves. He didn't drink their blood. It's really a story as old as time, only filled with bizarre pop cultural references. At least that's my perspective on it. What do you think, Sarah? Rod Farrell's situation seems to be a case of poor parental supervision, rebellion, teenage conduct issues that spiraled out of control. While Rod claimed that he had killed during special blackout moments and that he had multiple personalities, his prior psychiatric history, um, which has existed since his childhood, did not substantiate that. And his assertions to the contrary likely reflected a desire to escape culpability. And we can't really blame him because for a while, he was the youngest person on death row. However, as we know, his sentence was eventually reduced. Officially, Rod was diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, meaning, you're right, there was no psychosis, autism spectrum disorder, as well as a learning disability. Socially, Rod was an outcast who wanted to find a place to fit in, and he used vampire role-playing to attract friends who felt similarly isolated. I don't think that anyone would classify this as a real cult. He and his friends have no communal goals or sophisticated techniques for group manipulation. They just seem to like vampires. Uh, Nothing wrong with that. I love vampires, too. Heck yeah. And to cap off our episode on modern day vampires, I want to go back and quickly explain what types of killers each of these crazy bloodsuckers were. Richard Chase was clearly a product killer. The people meant nothing to him, their personality wise. He was purely after their bodies and in particular, their blood. And he also used their corpses for sexual pleasure. He wanted a product. He wanted the body. Whereas John Crutchley, he was a process killer. He was a sadist. And it was the process of torturing and drinking his victim's blood while they were alive that he was after. Once dead, the victim's bodies were nothing to him, things to be thrown away. It was just the process of murder that mattered to him and his twisted fantasies. And Rod Farrell, he's what I'd call a spree killer, though the meaning of that word is sometimes debated. But as I see it, this kid was just on a crime spree and he committed some murders along the way. He wasn't sexually motivated. He didn't want to use the bodies as playthings. And while he does admit to getting a rush out of the killings, it wasn't really a sense of sadism that led him to kill. It was really just a robbery. He wanted their car. He wanted their credit cards and their daughter. And he killed to get them. Being a self-proclaimed vampire was incidental in his crime, whereas vampirism was fundamental in both Chase and Crutchley. And that's going to do it for today, dear listeners and fellow freaks. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more tales of murder and mayhem here on Murder Coaster. And hey, we want to hear from you. Do you know of a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? 
or if you just want to say hi, shoot us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next week. Bye-bye.